0: but I think I can make this statement pretty easily. We live in the information age. But the reality is, some of this information isn't new. We're just getting it in different formats. For example, 50 years or so ago, you could order a book, and that book would come in the mail, and you would have a manual in order to fix your own car, or perhaps a tractor, or some other device in your home. Now, one just simply needs to find the right YouTube video. Uh, it used to be that people would go door to door. I don't know if you ever did this, but went door to door selling encyclopedias. I actually had that happen to me once when I was in high school. Somebody showed up saying we're selling encyclopedias. But today we, can, we have, of course, the internet. But we also have specials on TV like Shark Week, if you want to know about sharks. Channels like the Discovery Channel or the National Geographic Channel. Then, of course, there is the thing that we can maybe determine whether or not it's good or bad. All of us now have the ability to look up every symptom for every disease. And most of us come away feeling like we at least have 24 of them. We have all the information. Not only that, do we live in a time where we have access to the news, and we can hear the news, see the news, understand the news, at any given part of our day. Even on top of that, everybody here can have their own favorite marriage expert. They can have their favorite pastor, their favorite doctor, and they don't have to live anywhere near this person. They don't have to even see this person. But if we're going to handle this information, all of this information that we have coming at us at any given time, we need something that is above it all. We need something that is not only information, but something that can filter information, something that has to be more than just mere information. And I believe, as Christians have for 2,000 years, that what is needed is the Word of God. So the passages I took you to this morning are for the purpose of showing you the relevancy of the Bible in the information age. And I would suggest to you, I haven't met a single Christian who does not struggle with this reality. My motivation here is to realize that there are all of us, in all of us, times, experts we consult, traditions we have, habits we have, that sometimes cause us to relegate the Word of God to a secondary source. Sometimes we love when the Bible will agree with us. Or when we can at least make the Bible agree with us. And sometimes when we're facing an issue, the Bible becomes secondary. This has always been a struggle for Christians. It's not just a new thing, but I think particularly a struggle in a time where we can have access to pretty much any piece of information we want to have. So this morning, I want to show you from these three passages why the Bible, why God's Word needs to be the source of information. It needs to be something more than information in the Christian life. Number one this morning, I have three points for you. Number one, only God's Word is both prophetic and fulfilled. Only God's Word is both prophetic and fulfilled. Here in Acts chapter 3, the text that we read... The context here is a man, a lame man, has been healed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has used Peter. And it's caused quite a stir. Now, I don't know if you can imagine this, but here we have a man that we know likely had somebody take him to the, one of the entrances to the temple. And that man had probably been doing this for some time, so long that he likely knew the names of many of the people who came in. But here, the people arrive to worship at the temple, and they see this man leaping, walking, praising God. And we can only imagine, or we can understand, I should say, that why in verse 9 of chapter 3, the Bible tells us that the people who saw him were amazed and filled with wonder. But seeing that the situation is drawing a crowd, Peter does not want to waste it. And so he tells this crowd, this man has been healed by the authority of one you have rejected. This is the man, this man was healed by the very person that was handed over to Pilate. In fact, in the text he says to them, all you killed him. The righteous one came, the Messiah that you wanted, the the Messiah that you needed. You saw him, you saw what he did, you heard what he taught, and you killed him. Jesus is the name that has the authority to heal this man. But then we get an odd statement from Peter. In verse 17, he says, you did all of this out of ignorance. Now, Many of these people did see what Jesus, the miracles that Jesus did. Many of these people did see or hear Jesus teach. Of course, the religious leaders who were always around, as we read the Gospels, knew the ver- the scriptures probably better than anybody. Yet Peter says, "You did this in ignorance." And then we get our text, verse eighteen. He says, "God foretold that this would happen. He foretold, or he prophesied." that the Messiah would come and would not be greeted, but in fact would suffer. Now what happened? Perhaps all these people and all these religious leaders who had studied and read the text, who had heard it read to them over and over in synagogue, perhaps all of these people who said, you know what, I believe the Bible, had actually relegated it to something secondary. It's the only way I can understand how all of this could have been done in ignorance. Ignorance in the sense that they replaced the Bible with their politics, replaced the Bible with their tradition, replaced the Bible with their feelings. We see all of that happen in the Gospels. And then the end result is that the servant that was foretold in Isaiah, who the Bible said was going to suffer and bring salvation to many, that's exactly... What happens? Now, in our day, we have a lot of people who like to prophesy. Now, I'm not just talking about those black jobs on some of those religious channels. I'm talking about if you re- just, just watch the news. You'll get a commentator on there and say, you know what, if this guy gets elected, the country's going to pot. If this law gets passed, it's going to be the end of civilization. Now, some of you might be old enough to remember... One John F. Kennedy. When he was elected, there were a number of outlets that said because he was Catholic, our first Catholic president, that was going to mean that the Pope was going to be the real president. But only God's word is truly both prophetic and fulfilled. And this has to be a key or core idea in the Christian life. It's where the rubber meets the road. Let me give you a couple of examples. Not too long ago in Wisconsin, we saw a madman drive an SUV into a Christmas parade, killing six people. Five grandparents and one child. And we found out over the course of time that this man was only out because of some moronic politics by people in that area. Now this man is going to go to jail for the rest of his life. But so far, there doesn't seem to be any indication there will be any punishment for those who failed to bring justice the first time. What are we to do with that? Well, the Bible tells us that upon the Lord's return, such things will be confronted. That those ways and situations where justice was lacking, the Lord is going to return, and we're told that He will bring justice. This is prophetic. Now, do we believe it is going to be fulfilled? Give you another example. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee or down payment on inheritance. What does that mean? Well, if we go back in the Old Testament, Abraham is given an inheritance. He says, This piece of land is going to go to your children. That's what we think of with inheritance. In Ephesians, the idea is that we get to inherit as children of God. So all the things that are promised as far as the riches of his perfection, all of those things that we are promised in resurrection, all of those things that we have in the promise of eternity, the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a guarantee that those things are going to happen. Now the question is, do you believe that on your worst day? Do you believe that when children draw on the walls? Do you believe that when money's tight? Do you believe that at weddings and at funerals? When relationships are strained? The Bible, the Bible prophesies that the, that the glory to come is, is so much greater than the suffering we have in this life. Do you believe that? Because only the Bible is both prophetic and fulfilled. Number two this morning. God's word is unbound in every way. God's word is unbound in every way. Here we come to Second Timothy chapter two verse nine. At the beginning of the, or before we get to our text, Paul gives several illustrations of what it means to work the gospel. Not just sharing the gospel, not just teaching the gospel, but also training others to do the same. And he describes the work in the form of a soldier, and a farmer, an athletic competitor. He says, you know what, the Christian needs to be a soldier in the work, because the soldier is focused on the mission. He says, the Christian needs to be the athlete, because athletes only win when they follow the rules. He says, the Christian needs to be the farmer." He says he needs to be the farmer because farmers are hard working. Farming is uniquely labor intensive. There's no days off for the soldier. There's no days off for the athlete. No days off for the farmer. That's a tall order. We'll come back to the text. Here the Apostle Paul says, you know what, I'm bound up in chains. We know from history that not too long after this, Paul is going to be executed. The great Apostle Paul who had traveled so far and preached so many messages and started so many churches. This guy is tied up. Literally tied up. Now we also know that Timothy, Timothy struggled with confidence. So here you got to think, the man who has been a mentor in his life, the man he has seen do tremendous work is now tied up. And so Paul makes a point to say to Timothy that while I'm tied up, the word of God is not. How is that possible? Paul is saying then that the mission is still possible, the race is still possible, the harvest is still possible. Now Paul, in the immediate context, is saying to Timothy, you know what, I've had lots of opportunities to speak to guards and government officials. But I think the bigger idea is he's giving Timothy the confidence to know that no matter the day, the time, the circumstances, the skill level, the education, and so on, the Word of God is not bound up even when men like Paul are bound up. Now this is something we can easily let slip away. Things that, if we don't think about it enough, perhaps, in my case, I'll I'll get down. I'll begin to struggle. Have you ever walked away from a gospel conversation realizing what you should have said? Come up with all the arguments while you're laying in bed. You know, I should have said this, I should have said that. Years ago, I got—I I was candidating at a different church all the way in Alaska. And so far, most of the conversations had been done by email and phone calls. But I got an email from a teenager in the church. And I'll be honest with you, it was a very long letter. Filled with questions. And honestly, was completely disrespectful. The deacon, even the one who passed on the email, said, I don't know if it's really worth your time responding to this. But I did. And I regret it. Not because I said anything wrong, and not because I was rude. But the reality was, all I did when I responded to him was take every theological hammer I had and hit him with it. And I regret it, but I remind myself that even the Word of God is not bound in that situation. Or perhaps just a few weeks ago. Just a few weeks ago, God gave me an opportunity to take a gentleman. Uh, who had just gotten out of jail to a place to sleep. So him and I are traveling down the interstate, and I attempt to share the gospel with him. Now this is somebody who clearly did not know a lot, had not heard a lot, and probably couldn't understand too much, because really drugs and booze had messed up his brain. So I did the best I could. But after I dropped him off, you know what I did? I wandered all the way home. Did I say the right thing? Did I say enough? But then I had to remind myself that the word of God is not bound. But what about your experience? Many of you here this morning work with very rowdy Awana boys and girls. And sometimes I bet on Wednesdays, you think to yourself, they're too distracted or too misbehaved To get anything at council time. And it can get very discouraging to feel that way week after week. But we have to remind ourselves that God's word is not bound by our shortcomings. And it is certainly not bound by their wiggling. I remember sitting in church well into my teenage years. And if you didn't know me. You would understand I I, I always had trouble sitting still in church. I was always wiggling. Well into my teenage years. And I could also tell you that many Sundays when I was sitting in church, I was wondering about what I would do after church. And many times I was sitting there while the preaching was going on, daydreaming about whether or not the Lions would actually win this week. Yet somehow, someway, the word of God found its way into my life. It is not bound. But perhaps the biggest issue I find here is the issue of circumstance. And that is the belief that everything must be right or done right in order for the Spirit to use the Word of God. (coughs) So we get frustrated when the sound system has feedback during the most passionate part of the message or the song. We get upset because someone is late. They don't ask, they don't do this, or they don't do that. We're pretty sure the Word of God is going to be bound up because the food is burnt. Because there are crumbs on the floor. Because we ran out of whatever, the word of God is not bound by circumstances. Thank God, because if it was, we'd be in big trouble. So God's word is not bound by the flaws and limits of those who share it. God's word is not bound by the flaws and limits of those who hear it. And God's word is not bound by the flaws and limits of the moment it's being shared. God's word is simply unbound. That brings me to number three. God's Word is the most practically useful. God's Word is the most practically useful. We come to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is a very common verse or a verse that most of us are going to be familiar with. Likely memorized it for a Sunday school class or a children's program. But here the Word of God is described as effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating the soul and spirit. The idea there being the, uh, that the Word of God is able to judge and guide and help the ideas and thoughts of a person. And the context here in Hebrews is that it, it, the author is trying to, to encourage these Christians to remain diligent in obeying the Word of God. We have a sister passage to this, Second Timothy, Timothy 3.16, telling us the Word of God is useful for teaching. The Word of God is useful for rebuking. The word of God is useful for correction. The word of God is useful when it comes to rooting out false things, to train in righteousness. Has some similarities in language to Ephesians 6 in the armor of God. But in the simplest sense, the idea that we see over and over in many of Paul's letters is simply this. That the the word of God is useful. The word of God is practically useful. It's not just heady useful. It's not just knowledge useful. And in the book of Hebrews, we're told that that the word of God is what leads to the rest of God. The idea of entering into a form of promised land. It has the ability to help you when you're wondering whether or not you've been self-deceived. Let me say it this way. It's very easy. To fake being a Christian for a time. But the word of God will ferret out what's the truth. It's very easy to be convinced that your ideas and your opinions are are right simply because they are yours. But the word of God is a way of ferreting those things out. As our brother shared last week, would you want to know if your ideas were wrong? The Word of God can do that. So we have a group of people here in Hebrews who are facing some very difficult circumstances, some hard work circumstances. You know what i found in my years of ministry? Not only in ministry, but in life. Hard times have a tendency to be a wellspring of bad ideas. I've seen churches have come to the end of their finances, and I've seen them fight, worry, fear, and the sprouting of a lot of bad ideas. We see that in the wilderness wanderings in the Pentateuch. Every time they would face the, the difficulty of needing drink or food, we saw a wellspring of bad ideas. So what we need is something that can help us no matter the situation. Something that is practically useful. Something that can tell us not only to love our neighbor, but in fact can also tell us when our opinion is wrong when it comes to what it means to love our neighbor. Now the reason I use practical is because of two issues I've always found in ministry. The first one is I've met a lot of people. In fact, I remember years ago, I met a young man by the name of Jeff. Jeff built fences for a living. The kid was always wearing torn shirts, had the weirdest pants on, It was always disheveled. But he could speak three languages. He knew his theology backwards and forwards. I'm meeting a lot of a lot of those in my classes. Young men, twenty some odd years old. And when they're asked, just like Jeff, when they're asked a theological question, they can give you one of the most astute answers. But I I, I watched and kind of found it amusing, as one one time in one of my theology classes, the professor simply asked a theological question but then asked where does it apply and it was really quite funny to watch all of these students give very again profound theological answers but none of them could actually tell the professor how this theology comes into practice so uh, for example he would ask them what is original sin and so they would get theological answers and he would ask him, where do you find it And they would just struggle with finding an answer. A theological position on depravity really does not have practical value when it comes to one struggling, for example, with pornography. I'm aware of men who've had theological doctorates who had struggles with pornography. Theology, as my my mentor used to say to me over and over again, he would say, theology has to take you somewhere. Theology is good. Theology applied is better. The other thing I I say is that we have a tendency to think that it's limited in its practicality. Now I've seen this in my counseling when it comes to marriages or raising kids that there's 16,000 experts being consulted and yet the word of God is not opened. But let me give you a very personal example. At the end of every Sunday, I go home, and I have something to eat, and I sit down, and I know that probably within 15 minutes of me getting home, something's going to happen. And that something is I'll begin to ruminate about the day. As my wife can tell you, I can sometimes be my own worst critic. I can find myself a little down. The Sunday blues, I call it. The answer to that is always the same. You see, the Bible gives the pastor three basic tasks, to preach, to pray, and to shepherd. But sometimes a pastor can feel the the pressure to be also technologically literate, financial savvy, the ability to organize and run things smoothly. As John Piper describes and Laments, he says, You know, reality is many pastors are becoming professionals instead of pastors. And so what I have to come back to is say, you know what? Do I really believe that the Word of God can practically build a church? Can it actually do that? Are all those other things good? Yes. But if I just did what the Bible told me to do, to preach, to pray, and to shepherd, would it really be enough? I tell you, almost every pastor I know struggles with that question. But then we go into things, other areas of life. Where do you think the Bible is not practical enough for you? Is it your parenting? Your marriage? Your job? Do you think it's not helpful for times of suffering or only times of suffering? When you have heart problems, when you have cancer? The Bible is clear, and over and over again in passages like this one in Hebrews and the one in 2 Timothy and places like Ephesians, it's clear that the Bible is considered practical Able to help with every encounter, every experience of life. So, today, when we have every type of information at our fingertips, we have to remind ourselves the place the Bible has to have in our life. Only the Bible is both prophetic and fulfilled. Only is the Bible not bound up by talents and times and circumstances. Only Only the Bible, or the Bible, is immensely, practically useful for the work of the ministry, for the gospel work. For everything we are called to do for God and everything we are given by God, can the word of God help us? Let's pray. Father, I pray that for all of us, your word would find its way back to its place in our life, and its place in our thinking, in our decision-making, as we look at ministry, as we look at our lives, as we parent and have marriages, and, Father, as we face the difficulties, as we face the blessings. I pray your word would have the priority it's supposed to have in our life and never become a secondary thing. And I pray, Father, we would repent for those places and times when it has. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.